Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So our uh, experiment in uh, practicing loving awareness is uh, coming to an end as a group. I uh, hope it's been an interesting day for you, uh, both in internal and uh, external uh, awareness. As the Buddha recommended, both are important. So I want to leave time if anyone had any questions about something that happened in your experience, um, either in this last exercise or during any time during the day, uh, or even any of the instructions or stuff that I said. All fair game. So I think we have a mic. Yeah. You mentioned the importance of paying attention to endings. Mm. Can you elaborate on the benefits of that? Yes, definitely. So importance of paying attention to endings. Uh, this was a little bit leaning uh, uh, orientation towards perception of anicca, of change, of impermanence. So there's a way in which uh, we don't always notice that which is happening. And uh, one aspect of what's happening all the time is that things are changing. They come and they go, they come and they go. Because we don't notice that, we have some like, assumption of continuity of ourselves and of others and of objects and of experiences. And because of that assumption, then we tend to uh, seek some sense of security or refuge in experiences or people or things that actually can never deliver them in that very way um, because they're going to end. We know this about some things. So, for example, we know that sandcastles are impermanent. So very few people try to live in a sandcastle, right? Um, But uh, we don't get that about everything all the time. So one of the main uh, insights that's possible to um, have in uh, Vipassana is about this uh, awareness of impermanence, and particularly it's the endings, you know, sometimes um, you can notice the beginnings too, and that's also good to notice that things appear out of nowhere in some ways, but the endings are particularly helpful to notice. Uh, The more that we notice that, then the more that we're able to, in some ways, like let go of grasping after things or expecting things to be different than what they are, is essentially it. And the more we're able to uh, allow things to be as they are in nature in that way, then Um, basically the greater ease we have. So we take away that level of unnecessary uh, clinging and striving and stress of dukkha that's there. Is there also a connection to no-self? Yeah, totally. There's a connection to no-self. So that's among the continuity that we assume uh, is a continuity of ourselves, right? And as we notice uh, that which we pay attention to in the experience of the body and the experience of the mind is always changing, then we become more aware of what we call ourself as really a process. So, yeah, come into some better, uh, more wise alignment with what's actually true and possible for that which we call ourself. 
So it's definitely a connected. Others? At the beginning of the meditation, I seem to be more in it. And as time passes, then my mind becomes much more active. Mm. And uh, I wondered when that might change or how. Because <coughs> it, it seems I, I would like to be able to meditate for longer periods, but it's almost kind of scary how much it doesn't seem to help. Mm. Do you mean in any, like this is sort of a general observation about any period of meditation or a specific one that we had today? General. Generally, yeah. Yeah, walking to. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's not uncommon, right? Uh, and uh, in some ways it's kind of like the laws of physics, like, you know, you push something and then it like rolls and then it comes to a stop. <laughs> so in some ways, like oftentimes in the beginning of uh, anything, we put some effort, right? And then uh, we kind of are like a little bit coasting maybe in some way. So uh, a couple of things. One is that then finding more points to renew the engagement can be really helpful. And Meaning like uh, if you're, uh, do you pay attention to the breath in the meditation in some way? So uh, getting curious and trying to get interested in uh, like can I catch what's the beginning of each breath? Like, let me try and be there for the beginning of each breath. And what's that like, the beginning of each breath? Like, does it happen suddenly? Does it happen gradually? You know, kind of like being very curious to see, like, can I apply some energy, some interest in connecting like that, right? And then if that seems good, then sometimes people find, like, yeah, in the beginning it's there, and then it's like, so then you can notice, like, okay, is there a space between the in-breath and the out-breath? Get curious about that. And then be curious about the ending of the breath too. Right? So I'm kind of pointing to like a few more points of interest uh, if possible, where to apply some sort of engagement like that. So that being said, you know, um, sometimes we want things to be like steady like that, but all of these factors of mind uh, are actually kind of always changing too. So everything is subject to the law of impermanence, including your meditation practice, uh, unfortunately. Right? So meaning... Uh, even though, broadly speaking, as we continue with practice, uh, just like as you continue with exercise, like your endurance gets better, your strength gets better, you know, your own uh, like collectedness of mind and mindfulness tends to get better. But it's it's not just like a one way up arrow, right? It's usually it's like right. Um, so then, being very patient with that in some way, and just even recognizing what's happening. So even that you can describe and that you're aware, like, oh, yeah, in the beginning there's this um, engagement and presence and then it kind of fades off. It's good that you notice that, right? Like, that's becoming aware of the conditions of mind. Uh, so the, I think this is a common joke about insight meditation. Like, you get a lot of insight, but a lot of it is bad news, right? <laughs> so, like, uh, especially in the beginning of practice, it's like, oh, no, like, uh, I thought I was really aware and now I notice... 
oh, I'm less aware than I thought, or you know, this, that, the other. So it's all good noticing, and then it's good that you're wondering, like, how do I engage with this more? So become curious also, like, what happens in that trajectory? So even without trying to interfere with it, get interested in that patterning. So it's like, okay, you start with a real mang, even with the walking meditation, and then what happens? Like, does boredom come in? You know, is it boredom or, um, yeah, what's the mindset that comes in? So sometimes there's an idea like, oh, I know what's going to happen. You know, we take a couple breaths and we're like, yeah, I got that check breathing, you know, or take a couple steps and we're like, yeah, yeah, I know what this is like. And that's a common way that the mind works, is like assuming that we know what's going to happen next. Um, But it's actually totally not true. Like, we have no idea what's going to happen in any given moment, right? So that's like a... It's like delusion, you know, to think that we know anything, right? <laughs> like, so noticing that then, um, in some ways, sort of allowing yourself to re- refresh, like have a fresh mind. It's like, okay, what's this step like? What's this breath like? Um, what's going to happen next? What's this mind state? So basically I'm describing um, applying some of the more energi- energizing factors in uh, the palette of meditation. So investigation and little energy effort and something like that uh, in more points to try and uh, engage more. And then just get curious about the whole phenomenon, like what's going on. Sometimes it might be a really good idea that came up, and I don't want to lose it. Oh. Like an idea about something else, like how to fix something or whatever. Yeah. And then the mind is like, no, no, this is a good one. I gotta keep. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With that, I mean, um, there's a way in which uh, practice does tend to like open up, and then different ideas can come. Uh, for the discipline of the practice, I'd say like sort of during the practice period, uh, notice the way in which the mind is grasping onto that. So everything becomes something that you can investigate. It's like, oh, look, like this idea is good. Like. I had this good idea, and like I don't want to lose it. So then notice what it's like to be worried about losing a good idea, right? Like, it's a little stressful, right? Like, the mind is, like, trapped onto it. Like, can't do anything else but hold on to my idea, right? Um, so by and large, I'd say, you know, practice, like, in some ways you could, like, put a little dog ear on that, be like, okay, let me remember that later. But for now, be in the body. That's the practice here now, right? Like that. Um, Sometimes I tell people if it'll really help you, you know, if something's really like bugging you, then okay, jot it down in like a few words or like one word that'll remind you, and then put it in your pocket and then keep going. But if you start doing that, then you're sort of in some ways indulging the idea mind, and then soon you have like pockets and pockets of scraps of paper. <laughs> so maybe better to practice while you're practicing, you know, the discipline of just like okay, that's a thought. I'll trust if it's a good idea, it'll come back again. For now the benefit of actually training and being present. Like, that's what I'm up to, so let's do that now. So it's kind of like if you were doing anything, right? Like if you're like, this is a common one. If you're having dinner with someone and then the cell phone rings, right? A text comes up. There's like a modern modern pitfalls. And, you know, if you're having dinner with someone and then their cell phone text comes up and they look at it and they're like, I'm just going to send this one text. And then they do, they do. And they put it down and then another one comes. They're like, I'm just going to send this other one, right? It's annoying, right? It's like it's difficult to have dinner with them because they're like constantly engaging with something else. So uh, in some ways, in this way, like sort of the meditation as an act of love thing, um, like it is this, it, it could be seen as this beautiful, intimate time that you have 
uh, in meditation, right? And so anything that you're like externally focused suddenly or, I mean, the external focus can arise and internal external is a little bit of an um, illusion too. But when we uh, sort of get out of that frame or allow ourselves out of that frame, we're a little bit like sort of like sending texts during dinner, if that metaphor makes sense. So it's like kind of as an act of love, just like staying steady, like, okay, yeah, answer that later, take that later. Um, I just really appreciate the words loving awareness. It really works for me, and I always have a mind-heart split, and I know we often use mind, and it often feels uh, wrong to me. And, and so loving awareness just sort of solves the issue. And uh, in addition, um, the embodiment that you carry of loving awareness is striking, uh, really, and uh, it's really, uh, I don't know, I, I feel loving towards you, but it's, it's really marked, and I really want to thank you for share, sharing your presence with us here. And then lastly, I'll say about that last exercise, you know, we get ogled like that as babies, mm-hmm. and we do that to babies, mm-hmm. but we don't do that to each other, and there's something in our mechanism that is like once it gets past the concept and the self-consciousness, it's in a new territory, I find. And I had a difficult time switching to compassion Mm -hmm. from just the bare uh, receptivity of looking at the geography of somebody's face that kept moving in and out of, oh, this eye looks more receptive than that eye. And and that side of the face is a bigger aura. Like it was, um, so when you said to, you know, to to cough up the loving feeling or whatever. I, you didn't say it that way, but it, for me, it was, <laughs> it was, it was mixing two, two things. It yeah. was like, you know what I'm saying? It was like yeah. kind of two med- different yeah, yeah, yeah. tasks. Right. And, yeah, and this one it was kind of like tuning into you know, different aspects of our human life, right? So one is just sort of general sense of well-wishing, right? And I feel like with these Brahma Viharas, it's kind of like, roadmap for your heart for life you know like okay so establish a general presence of goodwill if you can right so what if we could just generally be like uh, have a sense of good wish for people around us and then um, the second one was kind of tuning into the aspect of suffering Uh, so it's like oh if you encounter someone who is suffering which is basically everyone if you really you know pay attention in some way or another then allowing the heart to shift to that. And there's a natural, um, there can be like a natural turning to compassion that happens with uh, awareness of others suffering. So in this case, you know, it was a bit artificial in the exercise because the other person may not have like looked like they're suffering. I'm asking you to sort of imagine that they have sufferings, but that was kind of that angle. And then the other side is like the, the Brahmavihara of the joy, the um, appreciative joy, which we don't even have a good word for, right, in translation. It's like, can you be happy for someone else's success or joy or happiness, right? Which is also very beneficial. And um, I think that so the Dalai Lama says this increases your own chance for happiness by seven billion, right? So it's like, <laughs> oh, not just you're happy when something good happens to you, but like when you see anybody else being happy, you could actually be happy in resonance with that, right? Or if you include, like, dogs, then it's much more, right? (laughs) And dogs are very nicely visible because they wag their tails, right? Yeah. Um, And then the last one is the harder one to describe, and um, 
um, you know, I was kind of riffing on Joanna, Joanna Macy has a certain way she says it, but uh, uh, is equanimity, sort of recognizing the interconnection and um, causality and karma and all this kind of stuff. That's probably the hardest one to access, both in this exercise, but I think in general, um, in some way. But um, there is a way in which I think even just recognizing, like, yeah, everyone's been on some life, life track, and um, there's not a single human being, no matter how <coughs> fortunate or rich or good-looking or famous, that hasn't uh, had suffering touch them in some way. You know? um, so we can kind of just remember that sometimes, I think, and it can help us to feel for someone in some way. And then also, like, probably there's not anyone who hasn't had moments of joy, right? So then it's kind of these different aspects of our humanity we can, like, tune into. Um, and then particularly, I think, for people who are different than ourselves, you know? Like, sometimes it feels really easy to resonate with someone who are like us and difficult to resonate with some people who are different than us. So it's helpful to just recognize, like, oh, yeah, this is just part of the human life. And then to the you know, loving awareness thing, um, you might have heard this already, but in the Buddhist um, translation of this word called chitta is like heart and mind is the same word in the, the like language of uh, um, Pali, the language of suttas. And in many Asian languages, like heart and mind are not considered so divorced as they might be in English or in like American sort of psychological terms. Um, so yeah, I can consider like the yeah, what if the mind, the thoughts were coming from here, you know? And what if awareness is coming from here? So that's a little bit something interesting to play with, too, is we have this idea that um, for many people, like, awareness resides in the head, and it's sort of, like, roaming around looking, and then occasionally gets hits from the heart about something, like, happy, sad, suffering, you know, <laughs> right? And it's just not true. Like, even where does awareness reside, you know? It doesn't actually reside anywhere. It's not really, like... Uh, geographically located per se in the same way you know like immediately as you if, if you feel your feet then awareness is it located near feet or are your feet located in awareness hmm. Hmm. Right. <laughs> so just to like short circuit our ideas about time and space and everything a little bit thank you oh. um, I have a question about um, when we're when I'm open to um, pain in my body and compassionate towards it, then uh, then I want to stretch it. And so when, then when I'm stretching, is that resistance? Mm. Uh, like You mean like if you're sitting in meditation and there's pain in the body? Yeah, then... even when I was walking, like somehow still trying, trying to get rid of it, really, yeah. but still being compassionate towards it and, and not ignoring it, Right. But so is that I mean is that not the way to go? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> I mean it's it's the usual way that we go, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. So then, you know, in that sense it's not it certainly is not um inherently unethical or something, you know, to try and relieve pain. Um so I'll give you the reason why sometimes not to do it, maybe. Okay. So in practice, it, you know, a little bit like what I was saying with that folding the piece of paper thing in the morning, you know. Um there's a way in which we're also expanding our ability to be present with a variety of circumstances, which includes um, difficult physical sensations, right? And as we expand our ability, particularly to be steady and to recognize um, suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering, right? 
um, that develops a lot of qualities of the heart and mind that um, can serve us well. So uh, that can serve you well both in your ability to be present with another person's suffering. Because if we're uncomfortable with any particular variety of suffering, usually if someone else shows up with that, we have to shut down for that too. Right? It also expands our capacity to be able to be as steady as possible with that, which is good because there's some um, pain that comes up in life that you can't stretch away. Right? Uh, and eventually that kind of pain uh, visits us in the human body. So you could say, this may be one reason why it's called practice, is we're actually practicing uh, to be able to see through the pain in some way. Right? And that will serve us uh, when we can't escape from it. Also, the investigation of pain through being steady with it can allow us to um, recognize that that which we call the body is not as solid as we think it is. Right? So the investigation into that. Um, we can recognize the difference between the body and the mind, like the mind being like, stop this now, I'm going to die, you know, and then the experience of the sensations of the body. So it also kind of pokes holes in the solidity of um, self, the solidity of an entity, the solidity of even uh, time. Um, so there's a lot that can be learned, a lot of insight that can come from at least some of the time, um, you know, sitting with difficult physical sensations. So that being said, I mean, one distinction with that may be noticing if you, don't, if you don't feel like you can do that at all with any equanimity, like if you're just like gritting you know, your teeth and contracting fully and being like, I am not going to move because I am a good meditator or I was told not to, you know, then the contraction and the aversion is being uh, encouraged in some way. So, yeah, so then it's better to, but if, if it's possible to even just take a moment and being like, okay, what's here? Investigate that, feel the physical part of it, notice what the mental part is, notice how the physical part is coming and going, you know, like that, then um, I think it can be very beneficial. One of my favorite um, quotes about practice for the last couple of years is from Bruce Lee, the martial artist. Uh, and he said, uh, so he's talking about martial arts practice, but I think it, also applies to meditation practice. So I said, uh, under duress, uh, we do not rise to the level of our expectation, but we fall to the level of our practice. Right? So uh, that's the reason. You know, when uh, something happens that you can't like uh, squirm away from, it's good to have had the practice. You know, of of being steady with it. And I've seen that in my own life. Like sometimes when I've had. Um, yeah, like a major injury or something uh, that uh, was big enough and painful enough, and I've seen the whatever amount of collectedness that I've applied, applied and cultivated, and um, ability to not identify with the pain of the body and ability to be steady. You know, all of that has uh, come up. You know, served me well. So uh, that's why, uh, if you have doubt, like, why am I sitting here with my knee pain? What does this do? <laughs> It could be that it will help you when, you know. So, so the, the idea of the um, difference between the, let's see, you said the body is not the mind. The difference between the body and the mind, the separation. Yeah, that's one so, part of it. Is the, yeah, and then they're connected, certainly. Right. right. But, okay, I just lost my train. But I, I guess, oh, but by not identifying with the body, that's how you can handle it easier? 
you don't identify with the pain. You it just does think, help a lot. Yeah. This isn't my body. I mean, is that the idea? It's it does help a lot. Yeah. Okay. It, it does help a lot when you're able to just experience it for just as it is. You know, yeah. the vibrating, the tingling, the heat, the right. whatever it is, right? And then also you notice the thing is it's not solid, right? Usually when we are like my knee hurts, it's like a thing and then a struggle. Whereas actually when you kind of get into the what does that feel like the knee, then it's like it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like you know. So then it's more like, okay, being present with this, 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 right? Like, then all you have to do is be present with each moment of that, really. And then it, you notice it changes. It gets worse, it gets better, it's gone, it's gone, it's worse, it's better, it's there, it's there, you know. Yeah, so. One thing I've noticed in myself today is uh, the mind's um, desire to name something in my experience as I. Mm. And I, I guess my general question that I, want, I wanted, to, wanted to hear from you is how you've sorted that out yourself in your own meta practice. Um, I've had a little bit of trouble with meta practice over the years um, because. Uh, over over this issue, like who am I? Because I feel that the meta practice, especially the meta phrases that are often mm-hmm. offered, is not is not clear on that. It, it's um, it's a koan as to figure out. For instance, may I be happy? Well, who's wishing who to be happy? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the problem I've had with meta meditation that's been a little bit of a nagging thing has been. The way that phrase comes across, it's a little bit of an invitation to understand myself as my suffering, as my conditioned self. Mm. In other words, may I be happy, may I, the unhappy one, be happy, Mm. if you see what I mean. And I think maybe the practice today has helped me to see that... um, You know, to, to understand that metaphrase differently. In other words... The voice is actually the voice of awareness, which is happy, mm. you know, wishing that the conditioning be released. And then it becomes an invitation to understand myself as that. Mm. And for that to be I, if you will. And mm. then I feel happy that I have a new I to be, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> okay. Is that new eye a little bit graspy? I don't know. <laughs> I guess, I, I, guess I, I can do some more practice to see if there's still a little bit of graspiness there. But I just wondered, you know, that, those set of comments, whether you might have any, and especially like how have you worked out the issue of meta in relationship to your desire to be an eye? Mm. Yeah, many, many good questions embedded in that. And uh, yeah, it's true. If you, particularly if you go to a lot of like insight meditation stuff and then you hear all this stuff like not-self and non-solidity of self, and then you go to metta, and then suddenly it's back to the wishing, well, for somebody, and then who is that? And <laughs> Right. So um, maybe a couple of things. Like one way you could understand that is kind of like um, there's kind of like a religion of science that, we, uh, that most people sort of believe in, uh, whether or not you call it a religion, right? So right now you probably believe like, oh, yeah, there's different cells in my body, and 
there's like blood and there's, you know, these cells are actually made up even of a, a nucleus and a proton and electrons and all this stuff, right? So on some level, like, we get that. And yet also, there is some physical body as a concept, like as a coagulation, right? So both are true at the same time. And at some points, it's helpful to relate on one level, like on the more cellular level or something. Like if it's like, oh, this, you know, I don't know, some medical thing, this is bleeding or this or that, or, you know, right? And then other times, it's more helpful to be like, oh, one ticket to the movie, right? So, then, <laughs> like, three billion cells, right, going to the movies, right? <laughs> so, so, kind of in that way, it's like, yeah, kind of like skillful means of like what scope makes most sense uh, in some way. You know, as to like the who is wishing, what is wishing, or who's even practicing or something. Um, it still makes sense in some way to say nobody, like that it actually is wisdom itself you know, unfolding. And we're cultivating the intention of, um, of kindness. And so then it's just the intention itself, right? And in some ways, it's not even necessarily positing that uh, I'm wishing you well because you're unhappy, right? It's just the pure like wishing well, like that. That intention in and of itself is a good one to have, like regardless of what's happening in that entity. Right? On the other hand, you know, when it when it shades more towards compassion, when it's like there is some recognition, oh, okay, this entity is suffering physically, mentally, um, but then it's like, okay, well, what are possible responses to that? Ignoring, um, like sort of cruelty, increasing the suffering, right? Um, or laughing about it, or you know. Yeah, recognizing that that's what's here and then in some ways um, connecting with that and thus, uh, like, compassion is like, oh, yeah, I hope things get better for you. Like, may you be free from suffering. So it's really kind of as simple as that. And um, sometimes, like, our thinking mind gets in the way of that. But probably in that very basic experience, if someone that we care about, like, has gotten hurt, you know, if you see, like, your good friend from work on crutches, you'd be like, oh, what happened? Like, I hope you get better soon. And then it's not super complicated in our mind. We're not like, but who's wishing whom? And how's it, you know, right? So in some ways, like, allow the heart to be, um, yeah, simple and pure and, um, yeah, in that way. Does that make sense? It does. I just wonder then, um, could you speak to your own, like, if you share the, what I was saying about myself, that I, I noticed something within me that really wants to name something as I or me. Oh, yeah. And then... And if that's come up in your matter practice and, and how you've worked that out? Um, I think it's like some um, recognition that the metta practice is, um, it is using concept in a skillful way. You know, like, like it is a little bit playing in the realm of, um, you know, the puppet theater of the mind, <laughs> you know. Because when you bring up, uh, like you're wishing well for your dog or something, or your grandma or grandchild or whatever, you know, then... Uh, you're holding that in your mind in some way. Um, but we're uh, like skillfully using the way, we're skillfully using delusion in some way or illusion, you know, to help uh, drag ourselves towards wisdom or <laughs> uncover the wisdom in some way, you know, something like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's something like, like recognizing, yeah, mind is the forerunner of all things, right? So, in recognizing that, this is from the Dhammapada, right? First sense of the Dhammapada. Like, okay, so in that case, this is a wholesome, skillful thing to do. Um, and there's many different ways of doing metta. So I don't know if you were here yesterday <coughs> evening, 
and we were kind of doing it sort of directionally too in that way um, without necessarily like one specific one who is wishing towards or even that it's me who's the wisher you know it's kind of like more like this force of of metta so there's many kind of creative ways that you can do that um, broadly speaking, I'd say any time that there's a sense of graspiness, like, yes, there is a sense of I there, right? So then, uh, yeah, the habit, the habit pattern of um, this claiming of something or wrestling with something or really complicating something, you know, because the mind, the mind likes to complicate stuff and think about it and own it and in many, many different uh, intricate ways, <laughs> So sometimes if, if it gets like the mind is too like, but who's doing it? You know, then it can just be like, shh, may you be well. <laughs> and so I just like wish well for the mind and let it... And that in itself is an I, actually, isn't it? The, 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 mind. the, the, the endless self-questioning is the I creating the self. <laughs> yeah, 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 it is, it is, yeah. So or also sometimes another good one um, is just like, uh, not sure or don't know, you know, <laughs> like with the more complicated questions. Like, yeah, don't know... Uh, be well, healthy, happy, safe, whatever. <laughs> Something like that. But yeah, it's a, I mean, in general, it's an interesting thing to notice is like the way in which um, there's an arising of self. You know, there's a contraction uh, around anything. And, you know, like the, the, these habits of mind have, uh, there's really like no particular limits on it of what it's going to claim to be its own thing or me or mine. Like, I'm doing it right, I'm doing it wrong. Uh, am I doing it? Am I not doing it? You know, there's a whole, uh, th- there's a good um, sutta that's like the thicket of views, which the Buddha um, illuminates a whole lot of these. Let me see if I have it, in fact, to pull it up. It's too long for me to have memorized, but it could be here. Uh, so the Buddha said, okay, so this is the case where an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill worldling or person, that's us, yeah, <laughs> Um, does not discern what ideas are fit for attention or what ideas are unfit for attention. So this being so, uh, he does not attend to ideas fit for attention, like metta, uh, but he attends to ideas unfit for attention. So what are these ideas? Uh, Here's how he attends inappropriately. This is not just you. This is like 2,600 years ago, so this is like everyone, right? (laughs) So was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I be in the future? Or else he is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? Uh, what am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? Etc. 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 So this is Majjhima Nikaya number two, actually. The thicket of views. So... It's somewhat comforting, actually, to me. That's like, oh yeah, this basically same template. You can hear these questions like <laughs> rolling around, and then you know, different of us have different favorite ones that we like habitually chew on, and then it doesn't really get anywhere. Maybe, but uh, it's endlessly interesting for us <laughs> to do that. But that also, in some ways, is like falling into some self-absorption. Even the self-absorption of trying to think about one's self-absorption. <laughs> so. um, my um, koan for the day has been um, 
meditation as love in a time of hate. Mm. And one of the things that I just feel myself um, prickling with a bit is um, as we um, did the mingling exercise and talk about the Brahma Viharas, and that probably is my um, my root practice. I do Brahma Vihara practice all the time. Uh, but it seems to me that it is so easy to say each of us has suffering, each of us has causes and conditions, and somehow make that spiritual bypass of um, you know historical trauma, privilege. Um, it is, I think, so... For me, the main questions have really been about the benefits of my formal practice and how that informs how I respond to all the conditions around and really making an effort to... Um, to understand in some ways the uniqueness and the privilege of my situation and not be glib about what is occurring for others, but to have a much clearer and harder understanding of that. So that just is um, is just an ongoing issue with meditation and today I I felt sort of the comfort of moving back into that and just walking by myself not really engaging with other people I mean it's kind of easy to engage silently mm-hmm. not so easy when people are really talking about the hard stuff so I just wonder if you could say something about connecting this to um the rest of our experience. Yeah, it, it definitely gets harder as you begin to engage more. Um, but also sometimes it's hard even when you're not engaged, right? I mean, depending. Uh, sometimes even when we're not engaged with people, we have a tendency, the mind has a tendency to project on others this, that, and the other, right? And so then it is harder for us to have a sense of... Um, yeah, even just a general basic non-aversion towards every being around, right? Um, so, yeah, th- there's more complications when we engage in the world and we see the levels of trauma, historical trauma, and, uh, yeah, there's are different sufferings that have been perpetrated uh, historically and that continue to be. Uh, and also that all of us kind of stand on, we're all standing on like a pile of corpses in some ways, you know? Like we're all standing on this piles of corpses of, in so many different ways, you know, of uh, the land, of people, of uh, those who were here before, of the civilization being built on slavery and genocide and all of that, right? That's actually just true. And, but then how can we even open to that too, right? To what extent can we open to that and then can we respond appropriately in different situations, right? And it's true, I think there's a strong um, urgency um, as there always is, but there's a strong urgency given the rhetoric and you know, the kind of national currents towards uh, not being 
welcoming or loving to different kinds of people or a claiming of, um, and basically the currents of like white supremacy and uh, elitism and uh, privileging those with a lot of wealth and making policies based on that. And you know, uh, so as we attend to that and notice that, it's like okay. How can we be with that? And it's it's a big challenge. It's definitely a big challenge to manifest that in the world and in action, and to be able to do that in a way that's effective, um, in a way that is um, wise, right? Uh, in a way that isn't skipping over, like you're saying. So that's also something to be aware of: is when we're trying to bypass, right? If we can, and we don't always know, though, right? <laughs> I think like sometimes someone else calls us out on it. It's like, oh yeah, this is my comfortable like bubble bath of, you know, way it is, or kind of. Uh, I'll tell a very brief, um, brief story that will put us over the time, but hopefully it'll be worth it. The, uh, uh, I did some, um, I did some work. I have done some work with different community groups, and I did some work with um, Japanese American uh, folks, elderly folks who were in, interned in California, and uh, they're trying to get a. Um, basically like a national historic site in the place of their internment in Tule Lake, California. So this is like far corner, northeast corner of California. And um, so we had to go up there and have a, a community meeting with the people of that town, uh, basically to try to convince them this is a good idea to put a historic site here. Um, but what had happened is that um, you know, the Japanese Americans had been brought from uh, Various places like the Bay Area and Central Valley, and you know all their possessions taken, and then they were put in these internment camps and forced to farm the land there. And then when the war ended, they were kicked off that land, and the land was um, cut into pieces and given to the returning uh, veterans, basically white veteran families. So now it was like those veterans or their descendants who were there, who had a very different framing on what happened <laughs> during that period, to say the least, right? Like the righteous war, especially World War Two, it's like, oh, who could dispute that, right? Like, and we were America was victorious, and America was good, and you know, etc. So I learned so much in working with these folks who were like in their 80s, and um, they had been there. A couple of them had been there when they were small children. A couple had been there when they were teenagers. You know, they were, they were young. So I remember we had this uh, meeting, and they were showing pictures of uh, actually them as children in the internment camp. They had a couple of pictures and. Um, now there are older people there. And one lady in the audience, an older uh, lady, was like, you know, she was basically telling them they were complaining too much, right? She was like uh, a white white lady who had lived here, and she was like, you know, things were really hard during the war. Like, we had butter shortages. And uh, uh, I remember thinking, like, did you not hear what they said? About, you know, like, ripped from family and possessions and forced labor, and you know. And to my amazement, the the... They were, such, they were so gracious and forgiving in some way. So uh, the, the man who was the leader of this, uh, this guy, Jimmy Yamaichi, said um, there was a lot of hardship during the war. Right? Like he just recognized that. Even, you know, he totally could have gone in another direction with that. <laughs> my own, I was younger at this time. Was, you know, my inclination was to go be like, are you kidding me? How do you, you know? Um, but actually his recognition, like there was suffering during the war, uh, I think in some ways like allowed her, she was like all oppositional about it, 
like her idea of the just war and you know I don't know maybe her husband died in it or he worked you know whatever maybe she did have some kind of suffering right now she was focusing on butter shortage which seemed like a minimal suffering right um, but that actually allowed her to be more open and um, to listen to the story and to also listen to what they wanted to do there and um, we actually got like we, we had this community meeting and, and a lot of people in the town showed up to this meeting, kind of surprisingly, partly because there's nothing else to do there. It's like a very small <laughs> town. Um, but the majority, like a huge amounts of people in the town signed on to this thing after that. And I think it was really like the grace and uh, wisdom and open-heartedness of uh, the, the people in the main group, the Japanese-American like survivors of this internment and their attitude, you know, which was really very open-hearted. Uh, like amazingly and uh, yeah, inspiringly open-hearted, uh, given what they had experienced in this situation and their ability to bridge uh, difference that was uh, kind of amazing. So uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge, and I think we do the best that we can. You know, uh, we do the best that we can, and so hopefully, you know, we practice on our own, and then we practice in uh, connection with others and individual relationships, and then we can practice kind of collectively in different ways. And along the way, also, we probably will mess up, and then hopefully we can be inspired by others and, uh, you know, continue on in some way. And it's critical that we do, you know. Like, as you're saying, like, it's even more, um, it feels even more urgent, you know, when there are these, uh, there's the cultivation of hatred and fear going on uh, in public discourse. So the cultivation of uh, love as an antidote to that, uh, is really important for all of us to do. You know. So, given that, thank you so much for choosing to spend your day here together. Uh, and I really appreciate your engagement and your practice and your questions. Um, I think we have a few announcements, maybe, to close. Yeah. Thank you, Anushka. I was just saying to Nushka um, right before this last session that I was noticing throughout the day how easy it is for the heart to be generous when it's soft. And um, just recognizing what a gift it is that you, you know, smart, capable, would choose to teach of all the other things that you could do with your time and your life. And, and that you would choose to fly across country just for common ground for a weekend. <laughs> It's just really heartening. So thank you. Thank you. And the way things work at Common Ground, most of you know, is when we have a guest teacher, we offer two-thirds of the donations um, back to the teacher, in this case Anushka, so that she can continue to share the Dharma in the way that she does with the many communities she serves. So please, if you feel inclined, if you're grateful and feel generous, then um, drop some money in the bowl or... Um, you can work the online donation system on the iPad or at home, and we'll make sure Anushka gets two-thirds of the money received. Um. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash 
donate.